Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you please to open them to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, and this morning we will be in verses 1 through 5. It is the, the summary and the capstone of this seventh cycle and the vision of the new Jerusalem. So, we've had three sermons in chapter 21 on the new Jerusalem, and this is uh, the cap that goes on top of it. So, Revelation 22, verses 1 to verse 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, or they will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You. For your word. Thank you for what you have given to us, for the hope that is before us, the blessed hope, Lord, of a world to come. We can't imagine it, God. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning to grasp at it and glimpse at it what you have revealed to us and given us to have, Lord, to whet our appetites and to turn our hearts and our longings towards that heavenly place, this heavenly future, this heavenly world. I pray that you would give us hearts, Lord, to take what you speak through your word, ears to hear, Lord. I pray that you would help me to preach, that you would be with us all. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage we just read, it, it, uh, it forms a bookend against the whole of the Bible. And, and it forms it against the opening three chapters in Genesis. Now, in those chapters, or in these verses that we just read, what do you have? Well, you have a new paradise. You have the undoing of the curse. And, and no, it doesn't say we will walk with Him in the garden in the cool of the day but something better. We shall see His face. And the point being made here in this at large is that everything that was lost in the fall, lost in Genesis 3, it's restored. And we're presented here with a, a picture of Eden, aren't we? Eden renewed and the garden reborn. And we would love that, right? Perfect world. That's how we think of the life to come. A perfect paradise. A perfect world. It's just like this world, but perfected. Well, as with so many things in Scripture, if that's where our thoughts end, our thoughts are too small. It's a problem with us in this life. God would give us great things and we're content to settle for just good. And so we would think it would be enough to have a world without pain, a world without sin. Everyone lives in a, a comfortable paradise where the weather's always nice. Oh, that would make us content. Or so we think. But God knows better. And His plans for us are much greater than merely a world free of pain and sorrow. In fact, if it was only a world free of pain and sorrow, that's not even what's promised. It's not just a bigger, better garden, a bigger, better world where nobody ever cries or gets sick or dies again. We're told the whole universe becomes the domain of the presence of God and of His people. I mean, just thinking about what that means, it takes us to the edge of our capacity for imagination. You cannot imagine what this place will be like. 
Not fully. Now, I guarantee your greatest thoughts about the life to come, the, the best you could possibly imagine. And any inkling of, of joy or anticipation you feel when you look forward to it, none of that compares. It doesn't begin to approach the glory, the pleasure, the exhilaration, the, the satisfaction and the peace that exists in this place. And it's just like God to do something like that, isn't it? Our, our thoughts are always too small. And even when we dream big, we don't dream big enough. Well, the point here, if I could pause to make a point here, is this speaks to our own good desires when those desires go unfulfilled. Especially when they're good desires. It's like Moses. You remember Moses at the end of his life? Do you remember what happened? He wanted to go into the promised land more than anything. And God told him, you're not going in. You struck the rock when God told him to speak to the rock. And even though God, He brings him up to the top of... It's strange, isn't it? At the end of Moses' life, God brings him up to the top of a mountain and He shows him the promised land. He says, here it is, Moses. You can see it. This is where you've been laboring for 40 years to get these people to. And Moses, you're not going in. In fact, Moses had been praying about it a lot. And God tells him at this point, don't ask me again. I don't want to hear another word about it. And it seems harsh, doesn't it? Moses, he's labored all the time. He's, he's fought against Pharaoh. He wanted to die in the wilderness, didn't he? The people, they bore down on him with their complaining and their grumbling and their ingratitude and their rebellion. I mean, he, he says, Lord, how about this? You just kill me in the wilderness and do something else with these people. I'm just trying to get them to the promised land. And then the destination that he's longed for and worked for for four decades. He gets to the end of his life. He's on the verge of going in and God takes it away. Or Elijah. Elijah's zealous for the Lord. He wanted to see all Israel return to the Lord with pure and undivided worship. Do you remember 1 Kings 18? That's what motivated Elijah. And when it, he, he appears to be on the very cusp of it happening... You know, he's on the verge of revival. The, the prophets of Baal have been humiliated, defeated, and killed by the people. Right then, the whole thing collapses. It, it dies at its inception. It's, it's a stillborn revival. Because as soon as it's about to arrive, Jezebel crushes it. She sends a message to Elijah. She tells him, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow, and presumably everybody along with you is going to be in the same way. And this great hope that he had, that Elijah labored his whole life for, that he suffered for, that he lived in the wilderness for, the revival that he hoped would come, the zeal that he had for the Lord, it's aborted before it ever begins. And Elijah's devastated, and so he's out in a cave, in a mountain. God comes and tells him, it's not going to happen the way you wanted it to happen. You remember the fire comes and God's not in the fire and the earth shakes and God's not in the earthquake and the tornado comes, a whirlwind, and God's not in the whirlwind. And Then the still small voice and Elijah hears him there and goes out of the cave. And you read these passages and it seems that God is cruel in these moments, doesn't He? Elijah wanted revival. What's wrong with that? Moses just wanted to go into the land that God promised. What's wrong with that? I mean, you read it and you ask God, why are you doing it this way? Is this just some joke? You tell us to do this and then, at the, and then you take it away? Don't pretend these thoughts have never crossed your mind, by the way. I know they have. They, they come. They might not stay there long, but they come. God, is, is life supposed to to be this way. Why aren't you answering my prayer? I'm praying for good things. And you begin to doubt. God made a lot of promises. You're not seeing any of them. God, why are you doing it this way? Well, do you know why He does it this way? He does it that way because He has more in store for His people 
than they could possibly dream or imagine. And He's never withholding blessing, withholding an answer to prayer because you're asking for too much. If anything, we're expecting too little even if we don't know it. Because the only reason He's keeping back the good things that you long for is because there are better things in store. Moses wanted the promised land. God didn't give it to him. Why? Promised land wasn't enough. Moses would have been content if he got a strip of land 250 miles long and 60 miles wide. It's not big. God told him no. Not because he couldn't have it, but because it wasn't enough. You say, what do you mean? I mean the whole earth will be the inheritance of Moses and the saints, Israel included. And Elijah, he didn't see revival come amongst the northern kingdom of Israel. Why? Israel wasn't enough. God was going to draw people to Himself from every tribe and tongue and nation in the world. Elijah would have been happy to stop at ethnic Israel. Ten tribes. God wasn't going to stop until He drew people to Himself from every corner of the globe. I mean, imagine a child who they want to go to a park. Or park in the city, and they, they ask if they can go and play on the weekend. The parents tell them, No, you can't go and play in the park. And then they even drive by it on Wednesday and point it out. Right? Well, there's a park you wanted to go to so badly. Did you see it? It's too bad we won't be able to. And the kid would, he would look, he would see it, he'd realize all the fun that he's not going to have, and he would be discouraged, right? Well, how quickly would that? discouragement vanish when his parents reveal to him the reason that you're not going to the park is because we're, we're taking a family trip to Disney World and we're leaving the next day. That would be beyond the child's wildest imaginations, right? Even if he didn't really even know what Disney World was like. And, and the excitement of the reality awaiting him would make all of the disappointment evaporate, wouldn't it? And when Friday rolled around, the day that he wanted to go to the park, a day that, you know, a park that only a few days ago had consumed every wandering thought of this child, that's all but been forgotten. It has been eclipsed totally by something better in every way. And so, do, do you see where this is going? So, it seems like God is withholding those good things you're longing for most and praying for. He is only doing it because there is something better in store for you. And, and God's not going to give you the off-scourings of this world. He isn't even going to give you the best of this world. He is reserving for you the fullness of the world to come and will not let you be content with lesser things. Well, that's the introduction to verses 1-5 through five of chapter 22. Don't be disappointed with life here because the life to come is better than you could ever dream or think or imagine. And it's not a perfect garden. It surpasses it in every way. It's a, it's a better Eden. I mean, think about this. Eden was perfect. This is better. Who but God can improve upon perfection? Well, we hear this better Eden summarized in verses 1-5 through five of chapter 22. And the first thing we're told is that a river of life flows from the throne of God. Now, of course, this, this reminds us of the four rivers in Genesis flowing through and, and from the Garden of Eden. Here, it's only one, but it surpasses them all in its splendor. Not only is it one great river, but th this marks a change concerning God's throne. In chapter 4, if you remember, God's throne was set in the midst of a crystal sea. Now, this was to symbolize His sovereignty and His authority over everything that causes chaos. In the ancient world, the sea was a chaotic thing. It was a destructive thing. Bad things came from the sea. It was a source of anxiety to God's people. But before God, this chaotic and seemingly uncontrollable sea, this source of trouble is as smooth and as clear as crystal. It's a symbol of God's authority over the trials and tribulations and apparent chaos of this world. The river, however, was not a source of chaos, but a source of life. It brought fresh, drinkable, usable water. It was a source of life to those who lived near it. 
especially if you were in an arid place like the Middle East. And the picture here is that in this new world, God's authority and power, His throne, it's no longer going to be used to restrain the chaos and evil in the world. There'll be no chaos or evil left. Instead, all of His divine authority will be used exclusively for the good of His people. It'll be used for their healing. It will be used to sustain His people. It will preserve His people. It will give us life. And from His throne will flow a life-giving river that will nourish all the heavens and the earth. It's as though God's goodness overflows its banks and washes over creation, feeding and sustaining us. And yes, I know He does that today, but in the world to come, it will be done in a way that today we cannot imagine. You know, I think of Jeremiah 32.40. It says, I will never stop doing good to them. It's God's promise. For all eternity, all of God's sovereign authority will be used for the good of His people. Now we know He does this today, but there's a difference. Do you know what the difference is? You will always know it. That's not the case here, right? We have promises to memorize so that we can remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. Like Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Well, why do we memorize that passage and repeat it to ourselves? Because the good that God is doing isn't always apparent and sometimes it's a struggle to believe what He said. It's hard to believe God is always working for my good when you have a chronic illness that lays you up for days or weeks or months or years at a time. It's hard to believe all things work together for good when your circumstances in life are not what you hoped that they would be. It's hard to be like Joseph and say, even though everyone around me is, seems to be conspiring against me in some way, God is still doing something good with it. Or Job, though you slay me, yet I will trust Him. It's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe, to have faith that God is always doing good when good things are not happening to you. When bad things are happening to you. But in the world to come, God's goodness towards us will not come wrapped in difficulty or be obscured by trials. It's not going to be like a light breaking through the cracks in a prison wall or, or a patch of blue on a cloudy day. It will be full, unvarnished, radiant goodness of God poured out on us like, like the anointing oil poured out on Aaron flowing down his head, over his beard, all the way down to his feet, covering him entirely. It will be like that constantly, forever, and you're not going to miss it. God is to us an ever-flowing river of life. And it's not just a river of life. It flows through the streets of the city. It flows, we're told, down the middle of the streets of this city. So you have a, a river flowing from the throne in every direction and, and flowing in the middle of every street. Well, what does that look like? If you were to see it on a map, all roads and rivers would lead to His throne. Have you ever been in a new city? And the roads go in every which direction, like an older city, maybe like Boston. It's almost impossible to find your way around without a map and a compass and a local guide. Or if you're using Apple Maps and you always get lost because even though you have a guide, it's not reliable. You just can't seem to get to where you want to be. It's not like that here in this place. God's not hidden. He isn't hard to find because all roads lead to Him. That's like going to a city... Uh, and every major road, if you look down it, you, you see a monument that marks the middle, the center, off in the distance. It's not hard to find your way around there. All roads lead to God, and if you follow one, you'll reach Him. And the point being made is that God is never far off. He is never distant or seemingly aloof. You look up, and there He is in all of His glory, and you have an audience with Him immediately. You have access not just to life, but to the very source of life, the wellspring of life. And He is the Lord of glory on His throne. We have easy access to God. 
And yes, I, I know we, we have it here as well. We have it in prayer. We can go to Him. And if we seek Him with all of our hearts, we will find Him. That's a promise of Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, right? If you seek Me, and uh, you will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all of your heart. But look, anyone who has ever spent any time searching after the Lord, the one testimony that you hear over and over again, and the one that maybe you can relate to, is that it isn't easy. Yes, they find Him, but it's hard work. The heart is often distracted. The mind wanders. We're, we're not steadfast in the search. Sometimes we give up after 10 minutes. And even when it's seeking the Lord for hours at a time over the course of months, yes, He comes and the promise is proven true. But it's seeking God like a buried treasure and it's a lot of work and what seems like a lot of wasted effort. And even when He is found, you're left with an acute awareness of how little of Him was actually discovered. Well, it's not going to be that way in the life to come for three reasons. For one, you will be perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit who is God and, and there will be nothing to hinder that union. Secondly, your heart will always be perfectly tuned toward God. And when you seek Him at all, it will always be with your whole heart. In fact, you will only ever do anything with all of your heart. There's not going to be any more distractions, no more hindrances, nothing. You will seek God and you will find Him immediately because you will seek Him wholly. And third, you'll be able to see Him. See His throne, see Him seated upon it and know that He is near. Now, as Paul says, we see dimly as in a mirror. And in his day, the mirrors were just polished bronze and they weren't as clear as ours. So you would see dimly as in a mirror, maybe as if you would see in a puddle. But then we will see face to face. And, and we'll get to that soon. But one more thing about the river. It's not just sustaining the people. It's watering the tree of life. There is a, a tree of life here as well as a tree of life in the garden. And this was told to us that it would be here back in Ezekiel 47, 1-12. At just verse 12 it says, And on the banks on both sides of the river there will be all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fall, and they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be food and their leaves for healing. Very similar to verse 2 in Revelation 22. And though it's good to know that this is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, it's not particularly useful to help us understand the significance of it. Well, again, this is symbolic. This is not a literal tree in heaven that you have to eat from to keep up eternal life. And, you know, if you don't get your rations of fruit from the tree, you'll die. Some people read the book as if that were the case. It's, it's not the case. This is clearly a symbol. Just listen to how the tree is described. It's a single tree running along both sides of a river. It is one tree, and yet it bears 12 kinds of fruit in each season. So it doesn't merely yield fruit 12 months of the year, but a different fruit every month. Fruitful all the time, always in season, always something different. You know, Amy and I, we always look forward to uh, July because in July the strawberries come and you can go and pick them. And if you've ever had a vine-ripened strawberry, you know that there is no comparison to those that ripened in a box in the dark on the road. There's just not. They're almost two separate things. I mean, one is sweet and delicious and the other is hard and tasteless. And even though they look similar and you call them both strawberries, they're not the same thing. And then after a few weeks... The strawberries are picked or they're past their prime and the plants that grew them die and return to the soil. You've got to wait 11 months again for the harvest to come. That's just the, the nature of, of fruit and harvest here on earth. It comes quickly. It goes quickly. But here's a picture of a kind of tree that always has fruit in season. Every month a new fruit. And it's symbolic of the abundance and fullness of life. It's called the tree of life. We're talking about life. The fullness of life that we experience in that place. It's not just mere sustenance. God's not going to give us enough just to keep us alive. Have you ever met somebody who lived that way? It's difficult for us to imagine in our, uh, our decadent and, and lavish Western world, even the, the lowest of us are doing better than bare sustenance. 
But there are people who seem to just only exist. They live to the bare minimum. Well, in the life to come, it will be life to the fullest measure imaginable all the time. And there will be enough. No shortages. Always be more than enough for all of God's people. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says that the life we experience here, or there, sorry, the life we experience, the life to come, will be really life or true life. Other translations, true life, real life. So what's he, what's he saying? He's saying it's a life so alive that it will make the life that you live now look like death. Think about that. There you will be so alive that when you look back on yourself today, it will be the same as if today you were to look at a corpse. And you would say, I am so much more alive than this. There you will say, I am so much more alive than I was. See what I mean? It's hard to imagine, but it's what we're told. And not only that, every season of life will be fruitful. No dry spells, no bad crops, no waiting around. I mean, how many of you have ever described your Christian life as a dry spell? And you wonder, how long is this going to last? And then when it's over, you wonder, when will the next one come? You feel like you're in spiritual limbo. You, you long for the mountain and you dread the valley. Well, there won't be any of that where you're going. Never a dry spell. Never a low ebb. Only the fullness and abundance of life all the time. Or how many of you have ever had a season where it seemed the Lord was near to you and was helping you and it's almost as if He was walking next to you and then it came to an end. And you searched for it and you tried to get back and it never came. What a difference will come. There, there will be no end. Your life will always be fruitful. And your life will always be life in abundance. There's one more thing here. I was... I was struck the other day reading Proverbs chapter 3. I was preparing for this, this message, reading through Proverbs. wasn't expecting to see anything pertaining to Revelation 22, but there was. In Proverbs 3, it's commending wisdom. It's pleading with the reader to get it. And then in verse 13, it says this. Go from 13 to 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Wisdom is a tree of life. And so one of the pictures here in Revelation is that we will be perfectly wise. And that doesn't mean you're going to all be really, really smart. It means you will be morally blameless. You will always know how to apply the truth in every situation in the most blessed and blessed way. I mean, just the other day I was praying for the Lord to forgive me for some foolish thing I did. I made a bad decision and I was distraught as a father and husband. You're wondering, how could I be so unwise? Right? And in those moments, because you've been there, you just want the ground to open up and, and swallow you down, don't you? You wonder, how could I have been such a, such a fool? How could I have... have I, I know this was not the right decision. I know better than this and it barely seems like you'll recover from it. You know what that is? Do you know what foolishness does... It takes the life out of you, doesn't it? Foolishness kills the life. We, we talk that way uh, colloquially, colloquially. It took the life out of them. Foolishness takes the life out of the soul. You know what I mean. But in this place, wisdom will reign and wisdom makes you alive. It, it really is, even today, a tree of life for those who take hold of it. Wisdom preserves life. Wisdom enhances life. Wisdom advances life. Wisdom leads to greater life. There is no loss in being wise. It's more precious than silver and gold and precious stones. We're told wisdom is the path of life. Here, we prove it to be true by our foolishness. Right? You do something foolish, you just 
Or when you make the right decision, does your life seem to go better, flourish, the lives of those around you? Wisdom is a tree of life. And in the world to come, we will be perfectly wise. And life will grow and grow and grow and, and never diminish. Life to the fullest. It's a poor description of how abundant it will be here. Fifthly, this vision of the tree of life, it takes us back to that Edenic paradise, doesn't it? But it's doing more than just that. We talked about that earlier. Because there, what happened? We were shut off from the tree. We were unable to go and partake of it. We were cursed and cut off. Here, it's open and available. Why is it open and available? Because finally the curse has been undone. You know, it's, it's easy to miss many things in Scripture, very important things. They don't jump out immediately. God wants us to, to study and to meditate, not to skim and to glance. And this is one of those places where paying attention pays off. Verse 3, there is nothing accursed there. Literally, it says, and there will not be any curse any longer. It's a literal translation. There will not be any curse any longer. No curse anymore. Everything that was lost in the fall is restored in Christ here at this juncture where time gives way to eternity. I mean, can you imagine? No curse. You can't imagine it. And neither can I. Because here, this, this curse is so pervasive, it touches everything. Nothing in this world is uncursed. Even the best things in this world are uncursed. It's, it's like a man who is colorblind and, and everything is in shades of gray. He cannot describe color. He can try, but he can only imagine what things like blue and red and yellow and green are. Because everything, everything, literally all that he sees is touched by this affliction. And the curse, that penetrates even deeper into our souls than that. It corrupts our very nature. It corrupts how we think and what we are at our very being. At, at a core constituent level, we are cursed. And this isn't the curse of Deuteronomy where the, the cursing of God falls upon the lawbreaker. This is the cursing from Genesis 3. It's the curse that falls on creation and, and plunges it into this sinful state. Nature itself has fallen. It's cursed. Work is cursed. Right? And you go and you work. It doesn't matter what you do for work. You, you run into that curse. Relationships are cursed. There's, God puts something between a man and a wife in Genesis 3. Sin affects all of our relationships. Childbirth is cursed. Everything in this life, no matter how wonderful it is, is subject to this cursing. And we look forward to finally being free from it, even if we don't fully grasp what that means. Romans 8 speaks about this longing, but, but not from a human perspective. It, it speaks about it from the perspective of creation itself. And in verse 19, creation is, is personified as looking forward to the new heavenly world to come. It says in verse 19 of Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was uh, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation looks forward to being a place where we, the children of God, can be free from corruption. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Why did God subject creation to futility? When He created the world, there was no suffering or pain, no evil, no death. But now, every human being dies. And before they die, they suffer. Right? This world is hard at the best of times. You look at the world. Animals suffer. Rivers overflow their banks and sweep away villages. Avalanches and mudslides careen down mountain sides and bury people alive. 
Volcanoes erupt and erase entire cities. One night in 2004, a tsunami came and wiped out a quarter of a million people. Storms still sink ships. Cold fronts come in and people freeze to death. Heat waves come in and they burn. Cancer, heart disease, malaria, even the flu. They kill millions every year. Tornadoes sweep through American towns. Earthquakes kill tens of thousands of people all the time. Droughts and famines drive millions to the brink of starvation and some, many, over the brink. Freak accidents happen. It's like you're working on a door and it hits you in the eye. Or children are born with birth defects. Missing parts and problems in their DNA that make their lives painful and short. God makes this world groan under the weight of sin and the curse. And the reason He did it was so that our dull hearts and our sin-bent souls would see just how terrible sin really is. I mean, look at all of the evil in the world, the moral evil, the natural evil, all of it, and it's going to begin to give you an idea of how offensive sin is to God. Because when you see these things, you ought to be nauseated and sickened. Not just because these bad things are happening, but because of how bad sin is. How unbelievably offensive it is to God that, he would, that this is an appropriate response. And when you take it in in large quantities like what I just said, it can be overwhelming, right? That's why people stop listening to the news. It's just too much. The curse in the world is too much for us to even be aware of and live without being overwhelmed. And when we're confronted with these things, it ought to create in us a sense of hatred for sin and not just sin in the world, but sin in us. And we ought to say, God, help me to hate sin as much as I hate the disease that afflicts my body or my child. Help me to hate my own offending you as much as I am outraged about the suffering in the world or as much as I am saddened by the loss of life I see happening around me. God subjected the world to futility and cursedness to teach us about sin. And not only to teach us how bad it is, but to increase and make us aware of our need of a Savior to deliver us from that sin. Well, that would be a sermon on Romans 8, 19 through 23. And we're not in Romans 8, we're in Revelation 22. And in the world to come, there is no curse anymore because there is no sin anymore. And even though you will not have it, you're not going to sin you, you will be perfectly repulsed by it. You, you're not going to be tempted to sin anymore. You, you're not going to want to sin anymore. Parade it in front of you. Your greatest temptation today, put it before you in that heavenly place, and all you will be left with is nausea. Now, of course, there will be no sin there, but even if there was, it would only make you disgusted. Never enticed. And so... We will no longer need any reminders of how bad sin is anymore. We will know sin's evil then, and we will be more aware of it there, far more aware of it then than we are today. And so all of those things, futility in work, failure in relationships, birth defects and deformities, accidents that maim and disfigure, natural disasters that rage, harvests that fail, all of them will be a thing of the past forever. Because here in this world, I mean everything is tainted by the curse on account of sin. But in the world to come, nothing will be so much as grazed by it. One last point. It's verse 4. We shall see God. Finally, we will see Him. You know, this is, this is even more of an understatement than there will be no curse. This is what Moses begged for on the mountain in Exodus, didn't he? To see God. And in Numbers 6, 24 through 26, you hear it all the time. We close the service with it regularly. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and lift up His countenance. That's lift up His face 
upon you and give you peace. In this world to come, that becomes a a reality in a way that you could not imagine. How? John, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The promise, this promise is the high point of the heavenly world. You say, what's the, what is the best promise made? Where's the pinnacle of this new heaven, new earth? It's right here. We will see God. Not we shall be like Him, great as that is. We shall see Him as He is. We will have the vision of God. In in, in theology, it's called the beatific vision. And you probably think, like I thought for a long time, that this means the beautiful vision. And I'm sure it will be beautiful, but that's not what beatific means. It's the same, it's from the same word as the Beatitudes. And do you remember how they go? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. It means blessed. And the beatific vision, the vision of God, is the highest blessing that God can give. And in it... In seeing Him, there is a blessedness that transcends every human joy and happiness. That's what we were made for. Right? Have you ever trained to do a job and then you're not doing that job, you're doing something else, and it just it's always kind of irritating you? Or you, you see somebody and they're really skilled at something and you know that they should be doing it, but they're not. And if they started doing it, the satisfaction you know it would bring them. We were made to see God. And every one of us, and we're so familiar with this lack, we don't even know we lack. We don't even know we don't have what we were made for, to see God. But in this place we're going, that blessedness will not only be a reality, but it will be poured directly into the soul. And it is the most supreme satisfaction that any creature could possibly experience. It is a sight that is so wonderful. The vision itself, just seeing Him brings a fullness of blessing. That's what's in view here, a vision of God. And even though we don't know what we are going to be like, the one thing we do know is we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Not a theophany like a burning bush. Not like a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. Not, a, not an indirect representation. But we will see Him in His unveiled being. See, all of the joys, all of the blessings experienced by God's people in the Old Testament, they had a limit, didn't they? The limit was this. No man shall see God. No man shall see God and live. Not even Moses. Again, Moses begs him and God says, no, you can see my backward parts, but my face you shall not see. That kind of intimate looking directly at God, it's forbidden to every mortal man. But in this place, not only is it not forbidden, it's what makes heaven heaven. Now maybe you hear that and you get excited. But then you're a good theologian and and so you, you put the brakes on that excitement and you say, wait a minute, God's a spirit. How can we see an invisible spirit? Well, it's true. He is a spirit and it's true. Jesus says no man has seen God. But it's also true that here and back in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, we're told we will see God. So think about that for a second. What is required in order to see God? The Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's not being merciful. It's not poor in spirit, not being persecuted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And what that's telling us is the reason why we can't see God is not because there is a problem with our eyes. The reason why we cannot see God is because there is something wrong with our hearts. But when we finally enter into that glorious place and receive the fullness of sanctification, all of those barriers that prevent and hinder us from seeing God will be removed. Um, You say, okay, well, that doesn't address the problem of God being invisible. God is a spirit. How can our material eyes see an invisible spirit? 
Well, I don't know exactly how it works, and, and God hasn't directly told us. But, but remember, one of, if not the, defining attributes, characteristics of this new world is that heaven and earth, spirit and material, are one. They'll be unified, no longer separated. And so considering that, Jonathan Edwards wrote on how shall we see God? And he wrote that our vision today, it's mediated, meaning it's not direct. For example, when you look out a window, what do you see? You see light reflecting off of things and it reaches your eye and your brain interprets the light and turns it into a picture. But, but if it were dark, you couldn't see a thing. And so your vision is mediated or it's facilitated by light or by other things. It's not direct. And so Edwards, he's thinking about this and he says, in the heavenly world, our vision of God will not need pass through our eyes, but we will be in such a state that our souls with God, spirit and the delight of our souls in heaven will be that we see Him always. It's hard to see Him here, isn't it? We have to be reminded, like I said, to seek Him. When, when we pray, our thoughts wander, or even sinful thoughts creep in, temptations draw the heart away, or just the busyness of life draws you away. The blessedness pronounced in number six, it isn't enjoyed all the time, is it? It ought to be. We, we don't have a constant sense of living before the face of God, His face shining upon us, and we have to fight to keep ourselves in the love of God. But in the life to come, there will be no fight. Communion with God will be perfect because you will be perfected in Christ, and nothing in all of the cosmos will hinder, prevent, or stop God from filling everything with His presence. And you won't say, you know, we, in Him we live and move and have our being because you know it intellectually, it's true. You will say, in Him we live and move and have our being because every moment of your life will be deeply conscious. Your soul will be deeply aware and responsive to His immense and always ever-present nearness. You will see Him as He is. Oh, there's a lot more that could be said about this passage and a lot I didn't have time to say, but just, just listen. Everything I've said, it's true. It's really going to happen. And it's the destiny for all of those who've put their trust in Jesus Christ. This is where you're going. This is the, the, the path that you're on. It's narrow and it leads to life. But there are many who are not on this path that leads to life. And if that's you, just compare for a moment this heavenly destination with the alternative, the lake of fire. You have, you have one destination of joy and of glory and of everlasting life, a, a kind that cannot be imagined here in this world and, and in the other a kind of dread and pain and hopelessness that nobody here has ever come close to suffering or knowing. Your worst days, the worst days anybody have ever experienced don't compare to this. And where you go depends on one thing. Do you believe on Jesus Christ? These aren't just fancy words to, to lift the Spirit with promises that are never going to come. You know, we live in a world that says, well, if it works for you, that's good for you. This is not works for us. This is true for every human being. All eight billion of them. They're realities. And if your hope is in Christ, then my prayer for you is that these realities would drive you to holiness, drive you to think less of this world and drive you to invest your life in the world to come by living for Him during your short stay here upon the earth. And if your hope is in anything else, then let these promises draw you to Christ. Forsake every other future hope. You have future hopes. They're not going to happen. This is the one that's going to happen. And He has said... All of you who are weary and heavy laden, 
Come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. So forsake every other future hope because they can't deliver. They can only disappoint. And run to Christ who will be with you in the trials of life and shepherd you into this life to come. The doors, the gate is narrow and the way is narrow, but the doors are open for all of those who would come to Him. Pray that you would come and enjoy the inheritance of the saints. But let's pray. Lord, you are the Lord of life and death. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. You are the Lord of eternity and of hell. All things are open before you like an open book. You know the hearts of men. You know all things. You know the secret things. Nothing is hidden from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would search our hearts this morning. What are we hoping in? What are we longing for? Lord, prune us off of these lesser pleasures and give us a greater ambition for the life to come. Help us not to be content with trinkets and baubles that moth and rust will devour. Lord, turn our eyes to the kingdom everlasting that we would store up for ourselves treasures that will never tarnish or perish. Lord, thank You for the inheritance You have given us as sons. I pray for Your children, Lord, Your, your people, those who have put their trust in You, that they would all the more heartily and wholly live for You here in this world, that they would see the life to come and it would make this world grow dim. I pray, Lord, for those who do not know You. Maybe they're wrestling with it, Lord. Lord, there's nothing in this world worth dying for. There is everything that You have given. Every good thing, Lord. And I pray that they would count the cost and find, Lord, that they would come to their senses like the prodigal son and see the life to come is better than anything that they could have here. That they would come to You. Lord, grant them the grace to come. And Lord, we thank You we thank You, Lord, that the world You've prepared for us is not like this one, just better. Lord, it is entirely, quantitatively, qualitatively different. Lord, we shall see Your face and every longing of every soul will be forever satisfied in Christ. It's in His name we pray and it's to You we look in Jesus' name. Amen.